Uh, it would be January 8th of 1991. I recently had the honor of taking part in an event run by the Utah chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention called the World Suicide Prevention Day Virtual Candle Lighting. As I listened to all the powerful speakers and a beautiful rendition of Bridge Over Troubled Water, I was flooded with emotions of those we've lost. However, I was also reminded of why this podcast, Facing Tomorrow, was created, and of one of the influencers for sharing my voice and the voices of others experiencing moments of change, those who are the change agents working hard to positively impact the lives of others. September is National Suicide Prevention Month, and September 2020 is shaping up to be one of the most challenging we have seen in many years. As the pandemic continues to spread and uncertainty reigns supreme, concerns regarding mental health and suicide have grown exponentially. As American Association of Suicidology President Jonathan Singer shares, everyone is weathering the same storm in different boats, and some of those boats are going to sink unless we take action. Sandhya Raman of Roll Call notes that the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI, helpline has seen a 65% increase in calls and emails since March. More alarming, an April ABC News article by Mike Levine stated that the Disaster Distress Helpline at SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, saw an 891% increase in call volume compared with March 2019. Now is our time to act and to come together. What can be done? I'm so thankful to have met our guest, Ryan Nesbitt, just two short years ago. Ryan is a respected and well-known suicide prevention advocate in the state of Iowa. We'd crossed paths many times at mental health conferences, but I had never said hello until a conference at a school in Ames, Iowa in 2018. What started simply as a high five and a thank you grew into a call for assistance and action after we said goodbye to our brother to suicide two weeks later. I owe so much to Ryan, and I'm thankful for his expertise and his guidance. I hope that through this story, you can also be uplifted and eager to take action. As I learned during the recording, Ryan and I were both introduced to the topic of suicide at the age of 15. However, that's where the similarities stop. As a high school sophomore in small town Iowa, Dunkerton, really small town, uh, probably 800 people. I grew up in the country by Dunkerton. Uh, I think our class had 33 people per class. Small town Iowa, that's about normal. Uh, but that day, I will never forget as a 15-year-old because my good friend Roger took his own life. It's been 29 years, but I can still remember that day consistently when I take time to think about it. Uh, kind of the build up to it. This is a long time ago. This is 1991. And I fast forward to now and I know the warning signs and the what to look for and the invitations, etc. Then no clue whatsoever. Uh, Roger was temper, big temper, which a lot of teenage boys have. Farm kid that had to work a lot. This is the early 90s. I grew up on a farm too, and we worked a lot. So, you know, there's some differences with our parents. My parents know that. His parents knew that because we, some of us had to miss some sports because we had to work. That's reality. But he could go from kind of acting normal to punching his locker. I could do the same thing, though, at that age. A lot of boys do that. So it kind of missed a lot of the signs, but it, it built up and built up. And one day, before cell phones too, one morning before school, I think it was a Tuesday, our home phone rang, the landline, and it was his parents saying they can't find him. So it was a school day, and I thought, I, what's going on? I didn't instantly think, oh my goodness, he may have attempted suicide. I thought maybe he's walking to school 
we lived in the country. That didn't make much sense. It's January. There was a lot of snow. It was cold. Uh, maybe he's out in one of their buildings doing chores or something because they had like a chicken farm. Maybe he walked to his friend's house. Just a lot of maybes. So there were a lot of phone calls made to kids in my class, my friends. Uh, eventually, my mom said, let's just go out there. My parents are emergency medical service ambulance volunteers. So we drove to his house, uh, talked to his parents. I know at one point they said, well, there's no guns missing. I thought, that's kind of weird. Why are you telling me that? Farmers, Iowa, rural, a lot of people own weapons, totally fine. So that comment kind of threw me off a little bit. We talked. We thought maybe he's just going to show up at school. Maybe he stayed overnight at somebody's house and he'll just show up. So my mom and I started driving to school. I wasn't old enough to drive by myself. And for some reason, I, I'm a spiritual person, so I think it was a bigger thing. We took a different route than the one we took going to their house. So we decided to drive gravel. This is Iowa. It's rural. We have gravel roads. So we start driving gravel and we come to a curve and there's a lot of snow on the ground. And I look out the window of the car and I can see shoe prints in the snow and like an instant click of my brain. Like that's gotta be his shoe prints. So we go back to his house and get some more winter clothes cause it's cold. And for some reason we decided his parents and myself would follow the shoe prints. You know, looking back 30 years later, maybe not the best idea for a 15-year-old boy to be following the shoe prints of his buddy, but I, I don't think it had set in yet that maybe something had gone wrong or this could end bad. So we started walking to follow him. My mom didn't walk with us. She had all kinds of knee problems, etc. She was going to stay by the car. Walked a while. You're just following shoe prints in the snow. You can clearly see them. Uh, I think maybe at one point we couldn't really see him. So his dad kind of broke off. There was a crick and he kind of branched off that way. And I kept walking with Roger's mom. And eventually I thought I saw a coat in the snow. And my mind, you know, 15 years old, my mind is not comprehending. Why, why would he take his coat off if he's walking four miles to school and then I could see a glove and still brain is not understanding what is going on here and a few more steps and you can kind of see a lump and I thought what is that Roger what is going on and then as you get closer and his mom starts screaming I realized that's my friend like laying there I won't go into too many graphic details, but it was quite obvious he wasn't alive. Um, he had shot himself. There was blood, and I was just like in shock instantly. From there, a lot of things happened that are still hazy <laughs> 30 years later. Um, this is pre-cell phone still, so you know I have to walk back or run through the snow to my mom to tell her he's dead, we found him, and she's ambulance, so they have to get an ambulance there because she can't believe my words. You know, he might still be alive. We have to plow snow so the ambulance can get back there. People start showing up. All of a sudden, there's a big crowd, and in this whole to-do, you know, we have a good friend who just found his buddy deceased and his parents and... Just a mess. Not my best day, for sure. Uh, I do remember being in like the coroner's van. I think that's what it's called. And to stay warm. And I'm sitting there and there's a paper sack in front of me. And it has the gun in it. Like, I'm the only one. And I remember vividly thinking in all this shock and sadness, I was looking at it and I thought, I'm just going to do the same thing. And this is like within two hours of finding him, just my brain 
had gone from, you know, a kid having a really good life to you just found your buddy dead by suicide to I'm sitting here alone and here's the weapon right in front of me. Just those were scary, scary feelings. Thank goodness I didn't do anything. But that the thought of my own suicide came into my head that quick. Unreal. What is absolutely astounding about Ryan's story is the recognition of how impulsive suicidal thoughts and actions can be and why we have to be incredibly vigilant with one another. Recent research has focused on this very topic of impulsivity and its relationship to suicide. In a 2018 USC News article by Maya Minert covering the work of clinical social worker Susan Lindau, Ms. Lindau shares that while suicide is often planned out, Research shows that when individuals make the decision to attempt suicide, nearly half of people will attempt it within 20 minutes of that decision. As we'll hear later in this episode, Ryan facilitates several suicide prevention trainings, which are evidence-based and focused on exactly that, the momentary decisions we can choose to make that will allow us to stay that much longer. Unfortunately, these trainings were not readily available in 1991. Uh, 1991, small town, Iowa. I never even really thought about suicide. I think a local town, actually where I live now, Jessup, Iowa, someone had died by suicide a few months before that. I think they were in their 20s. So we kind of knew about that. But I'm not even sure as a 15-year-old, I really understood what suicide was. You're no longer living, but why would something like that happen? What led up to it? So I don't think suicide had really been talked about in school, even with my family, parents to child, because it that doesn't happen in small town Iowa. That day, January 8th, I ended up at school because there was a lot of rumor going around that Roger had been killed. Um, this is pre-all technology, so... One person, that's the telephone game. I tell you something, you tell the next person, you mess something up, you tell the next person, and by the time you get around the circle, it's a totally different story. So me coming to school was kind of the verifier of this. He took his own life. Uh, no one killed him, et cetera, et cetera. That was a bad, bad, bad day at Dunkerton School. Uh... And he had a younger brother who was in seventh grade, uh, Bob, who's a great friend of mine still, lives in Minnesota. I was best man in his wedding a few years ago. He has a little boy now. It's awesome. But that was a horrible day for him. Um, the school did everything they could, but there just weren't resources then. Uh, I think they brought some counselors in, but those poor counselors were just overwhelmed like they didn't have enough training for a situation like that our teachers were awesome but this is new ground like what do we, what is the process is there a postvention plan not then now there are great ones from afsp or american association of suicidology you can find them all over the internet but in the early 90s no plan whatsoever I do know our teachers and the nurse and community were just fantastic, not knowing what to do, but the amount of love and just trying to take care of all of us kids, major effort. Do you remember the moment in which it, it flipped to recognizing how real the situation was? And what did you do with that, that knowledge, that concrete knowledge, not the haze that you were in, but the concrete knowledge that this was real? The, I was kind of all over the place. Um, the day of his funeral, we played a basketball game. I, I was a sophomore, small town. I was starting varsity. Okay, I was pretty good. We'll just leave it at that. But... I guess if I came to Ankeny or something, I would have been on the <laughs> freshman B team. But so his parents wanted us to play the game, which is totally fine. And we love competing and playing. So we did. But at the end of that game, I kind of went to a bad level 
of just like emptiness. And then you got to go to the funeral, which I don't really enjoy funerals ever, period. Um, good to be around people, a lot of support. But then after that, it, I spiraled pretty quick from a week before Roger's alive and I'm a Bible thumping athlete with good grades who is nice, hardworking to a few days after the funeral, I need to go to the hospital because I'm, I don't want to live. I'm threatening. I'm, my whole personality is switched. I'm cursing God. I'm saying I'm going to hurt myself. So it was just a, like a 180 my whole life really quick. Was uh, there a recognition by your family? Did you, did you ask for that hospitalization? Did you ask for that help? Or was it someone coming to you and saying, Ryan, I think we need to get some more professional assistance to help you? It was, my family was awesome. I have five brothers and sisters. I remember my parents sleeping by my door one or two nights because I kept threatening, I'm just going to leave and run away and go hurt myself. So they slept on the floor. Um, there were talks, and I think it was a mutual. They didn't force me to Allen Hospital in Waterloo, Iowa. It was a mutual, like, you need to be safe. And that's probably the safest place. But the problem is there weren't enough beds, which is still a huge issue in 2020. Uh, eventually, I did get in. I think I was at, I can't remember. I went to two different hospitals. I went to one got out for a few days and then I need to go back. So I was at two different hospitals, maybe over the course of a week or so helpful, kept me alive. Um, but you could just after a few days say, I feel good. And okay, pack your bags, <laughs> go home, kid. I hope now I think and hope it's a little harder to go home. Not just a quick, you met with your doctor. Hey, I feel good, buddy. And two hours later, you're going home to where there's maybe more of a process. Um, there's pros and cons in our mental health system, especially if you go somewhere where you're sleeping overnight. But the pro, which outweighs all of them, is it kept me alive. Ryan's experience echoes that of Brett Brinkmeyer's experience in our previous episode titled Finding a Life to be Happy With, Overcoming Mental Illness. While they were not ideal situations, Brett credits those moments with keeping him alive and moving forward until he found his strength and community in Iowa City. Also, much like Brett's story, Ryan credits these moments with the classes he facilitates today. So a big part of a class I teach is stay safe for now. Totally. Were there some bad things that happened at the hospitals? Oh yeah, I saw some things that a 15 year old probably shouldn't see because you're, we were mixed in with adults and I, I'm a small town farm kid who didn't have a TV till he was 11 years old. And I'm seeing things like, Whoa, what is going on here? So despite all of that though, it kept me alive. It kept me safe, but stay safe. I mean, in suicide prevention world, you have safety plans. Fantastic. I still have safety plans in my own life and I'm out teaching mental health classes because I know now I'm not suicidal at all, but I know when my life is slipping and I'm stressed and tired and being mean to my wife and kids, like, here's what I got to do. I got to go run more or I got to call my old buddy in Ankeny or I have to go talk to my past. I have safety plan steps, just nor quote unquote normal life. And I think we all need those, especially if we're having mental health struggles. I did that way too late after way too many years of struggle. Uh, but getting back to the stay safe for now is so crucial, not just in suicide. That's everyday life. Stay safe for now should be a part of every teenage girl's daily routine because I have one and it is a roller coaster, their emotions. Um, for stressed adults, it, everyone should have some sort of plan like on their fridge. You're getting cranky. Here's what you do that doesn't make you cranky. Eat brownies. Go run. Call your mom. Talk to an old buddy. Binge watch Netflix. 
read your Bible, whatever makes you get back to where you feel good. Why don't we do that more? Most of us just sink deeper and deeper and deeper and we know it's happening and we just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Safety plans are discussed throughout this episode and I have to admit, I'd never created one prior to this episode. Australia-based Beyond Blue describes the creation of a safety plan in the following manner. One, recognizing your warning signs. Two, ensuring that your surroundings are safe. Three, giving yourself reminders of reasons to live. Four, writing things that can make you feel strong. Five, people and places to connect with. Six, family and friends that you can talk with. And seven, professional support. Beyond Blue has also created an app called Beyond Now. This research-based app allows users to fully develop their safety plans and also has immediate connections to emergency numbers in Australia, such as the hotline, similar to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline in the U.S. Now, if you're listening to this in the U.S., you can use the web-based version of this app at beyondblue.org.au. Unfortunately, the mobile app is not available in the U.S., but if you're listening outside the U.S., you can get it through Google Play or the Apple App Store. Now, in the research I did for this episode, I attempted to locate a similar app in the U.S., but didn't have very positive results, so I'm asking all of you that are listening right now, if you know of something similar in the U.S. and have had success using it, at the conclusion of this episode... Please share as a comment or go to facingtomorrow.org and add a note to the corresponding blog post for this episode. We greatly appreciate it. Ryan continues by sharing his own struggles and the struggles he sees with society as a whole when it comes to asking for help. Uh, avoidance. <laughs> Bury it. The, I can't remember the five stages of grief, but I was just putting it off. The typical, I'll deal with this later, which... I would say most men do in life with grief or any stress. We just kind of bury it and tick-tock, tick-tock. It just keeps building and building. Um, I could still function. I mean, I made it through high school. I was fun, but I made a lot of stupid decisions. I didn't go out for basketball one year. The next year, junior year, stupid. Looking back now, um, but what it is is what it is uh college could function i could work i was the life of the party until i went too far and then my core people around me that knew me knew we need to get people out of here because he's look at him he's fun he's happy he's drunk but he's ryan's a blast but they would know it's coming he's gonna start fighting or he's gonna go sit in the corner and cry and it happened all the time. So thank goodness for these core friends who knew, okay, my fun's over. Now I got to babysit Ryan. Those are friends, big time. Our issue as humans is we won't ask for help or acknowledge that we aren't God and we can fix ourselves. We can't. Humans need humans. And we try to do these battles by ourselves because we're, tough guys and we don't have emotions and etc we just we have to use each other that it makes life so much better when you rely on other people and then in turn help other people so the question here becomes when did things turn as we heard from our first episode from nicole grief is not linear everyone's grief journey is different and it does not always follow a normal set structure as we learned from Ryan, his turning point took a few years. Much later. Uh, this was, Roger died when I was 15, probably late 20s. I mean, through all this, I made it through college, got married. But everything kind of changed when baby number one was coming. Uh, we did have a miscarriage when we lived in Grinnell, and then we moved to Ankeny. So then our first child, Olivia's 13 now. So it's, she was born 07. So around that area, 05, 06, 07. Kind of a realization of Ryan, it's time to grow up. You're going to be a dad. Um, if you don't change some stuff, this awesome wife is going to say, 
see it, buddy. <laughs> I gave you a chance, but I'm not going to live my whole life like this. Um, and then just time, maybe finally kind of finding myself and coming back to my beliefs, which I had been away from for a long time. So a lot of things kind of happened in like a year period, but then it was kind of another 180 of, okay, he's back. He has faith again. He's hardcore into the baby's coming. He's being a better man. Uh, and then it was decided we need to do stuff to help other people because life is precious and I could be gone any day. So let's take all this knowledge of my pain and other people's pain and try to use it to support other people. Often we need a few catalysts for change. Ryan's first efforts were centered around his first child. But often what we truly need is the knowledge that we are not alone in our grief and struggle, the foundation of facing tomorrow. I can remember we lived in Ankeny for 13 years. I wanted to go to a support group, a suicide bereavement group, which I think there's 15 or 20 all around Iowa. Absolutely love them. So these groups are for people. It's a grief group, but it's a specific they need to have lost someone to suicide. You have all kinds of grief groups, cancer, blah, 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 which are great, but these are suicide specific. And I finally looked one up and was like, I, I'm going to go. And that was a big, big help too. Cause I think after about 10 minutes of my first group, I was like, Whoa, there are other people. Like I was happy. I'm in a room of people that are sad talking about who they lost. Everyone has to introduce themselves. And I'm like, I'm so happy right now because I'm not alone. Just like this huge weight. It had been a long time. This was 05, 06, 07. Yeah. Okay. A long time. So just, and not very many guys at these groups. Traditionally, it's mostly females. Um, there's a few reasons for that. Most of the suicides are male three-fourths or I think it's 80% in Iowa and we're dudes we're not hey let's go to a grief group and talk about our feelings in front of other people well I say you should but not too many guys are lining up to do that but man it was powerful just to share and to know I'm not alone unreal so I if anybody listens to this and gets nothing out of it besides that go to a grief group I kept going back for a while and it just, everything was helping me so rapidly with marriage, child, church, support, and everything just turned real quick to the positive. Um, so the grief period had been so long and ugly, not following the steps, just a lot of rage and anger and avoidance. So the support kind of rallied me to, we got to do stuff for other people now. There, there's got to be more than just support groups. There's almost 500 suicides in Iowa now per year. Then it was probably about 365, one per day. So how many people need support? Well, if there's 10 people per suicide, this is thousands of people who need an outlet. So rapid things started happening. Um, I found American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, AFSP, which is based out of New York, but doing work in every state. So I kind of linked in with them, me and a high school buddy, Troy Belmer, who was one of the people at the parties in college who would know trouble's coming. We got to take care of Ryan, get people away. And we formed our own nonprofit, Alive and Running Iowa. So that was created in 2010. Uh, Troy, myself, and our wives sat at his kitchen table and schemed up ideas. And we thought, we're going to start a 5K in tiny Dunkerton, Iowa. And we need to come up with a name of it. I'm not sharing that story, but it's hilarious. <laughs> we may have borrowed the name. There's a lot to that story, but we are alive and running Iowa. If you Google alive and running, you'll probably find another one in California that's much bigger but we are alive and running Iowa and we worked it all out uh, so we came up with this idea let's just have a 5k every year and see if people come and we'll raise some money 
and we'll just give it to AFSP or something local. Uh, well, the first year, 440 people came. So we were like, holy cow, let's do this every year and see what happens. And now we've had 11 years. Obviously, 2020 was a virtual event. We did not gather 1,000 people in Dunkerton in the middle of COVID. Uh, so people ran on their own or walked on their own, and we still raised money. Uh, everything went really well this year, except getting human beings together in the same place to support each other, which is kind of why we created it. So hopefully next year, COVID has gone away. So Alive and Running was formed. I started learning about American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, I was a stay-home dad at this time, so not a lot of free time until years kept going by and all of a sudden all the kids are in school. Now you got a lot of free time. So then I really went after it. Uh, with AFSP, I was, we started a chapter in Iowa. I was the co-chair of the board. I was driving all over Iowa doing talks, Talk Saves Lives, which is a great PowerPoint as long as the presenter gives real stories too. Great material on the PowerPoint as long as the person talking is sharing, I lost someone to suicide or I was also suicidal. Uh, so did a ton of those, like high school health classes, tons of them, colleges, churches, anybody that would let me come talk, I would do it. And Alive and Running kept getting bigger. Uh, we started to do more than just a 5K, like, oh, we have money now. What can we do? So that money really goes to like the Waterloo, Cedar Falls part of Iowa, the Cedar Valley. Uh, this year we just bought, I think, $18,000 of chairs and tables for Allen Hospital Mental Health Wing, where I resided in 1991 for a few days. So that was pretty awesome. The kind of the circle of life that I spent time there in 91 and in 2019, my nonprofit I'm part of was able to bring all new tables and chairs to each room. In our episode titled Suicide Loss, A Professional's Point of View, Leah Damaris shares that help can come in all shapes and sizes. It could take the form of professional guidance, conversation with close friends and family, or a trusted neighbor. It could be in the form of music or art therapy. It could be in a new hobby. It is the best when it's in a mixture of all of these things. Just continue talking, reaching out, and trying. We are best when we are one community working through our grief journey together. However, as a stigma fighter, she also shared how fully aware she is of the challenge to share our true feelings, which is referred to as the broadcast stage of Corrigan's hierarchy of disclosure strategies we discussed in Brett's episode. The first thing that pops in my head that's concerning is whatever talk or class I'm teaching, whether it's Talk Saves Lives, uh, Assist, that we've talked about a little bit, QPR, Question, Persuade, Refer, or if I'm just doing a keynote, any kind of talk, presentation, teaching I do, people are just scared still to talk about mental health and suicide. I will get a room of no head nodders and they're afraid to look at my eyes and they won't talk, discuss, ask questions. And I swear every time as I'm packing up and leaving, someone chases me down in the hall. It happens everywhere you go. I'm like, why didn't you say something in there? That would have been a great discussion. I don't want everybody to know. Or, But it happened 99% of the time at places I've been, there's at least one person that will secretly come find you. Whether running down the hallway or sending you a text or phone call. Like, yes, you totally described how I feel right now. Like, you should have said that in front of everybody. I understand why they don't, but you're not the only one in that room that feels that way. I know that. Why are we not talking about this? Well, because we all have these fake faces and our lives are perfect and wrong. Definitely wrong. The stigma of mental health is prevalent. One of the ways speakers like Ryan are trying to break the walls around stigma is through evidence-based training programs meant to provide purposeful questioning to bring people out of that darkness. QPR, I am falling in love with. Uh, 
I did so many talk saves lives for AFSP, probably 150. I mean, tons of them. So QPR is a little bit different because I knew the talk saves lives by heart. I didn't have to look at the screen because <laughs> I did so many of them. QPR, I think I've done six now, but I have 16 on my schedule. It's a very exciting time. It stands for question, persuade, refer. So you can look up QPR on your phone. There's a QPR Institute. It's kind of like CPR. That's how they came up with the QPR. Uh, if we can get more people educated on how do we pay attention to people around us. So the, the Q stands for question. There's stuff that happens before that, though. We need to be aware. Warning signs is what most of us call them. How are people acting? How are they talking? Are things happening in their life? So I have a friend, hypothetical named Justin, who just got divorced. And he said a few things that worry me. And he's been drinking every day. And he doesn't usually do that. Well, I know a lot about suicide prevention now. Those are like three biggies. Like red flag, red flag, red flag. Most people though, like, eh, well, you know, bad things are happening in his life. Well, we need to pay attention. So if he's your friend, say, hey, let's get a cup of coffee. Like now, not two weeks from now. What can I do to support my buddy, Justin, who these things are happening? Um, so before you even get to the question part, I try to hammer into people. You got to pay more attention to the people around you. I do. I have to. I have to pay attention to my family, my neighborhood, my friends, my church family. Give them more attention because I'm always looking for warning signs and they should be doing the same with me. That's what community should be. That's what family should be. Uh, I don't think we're going to save them all, but we should not be losing 500 people a year to suicide in Iowa. So if more of us would edu be educated on this and just give more attention. If you ask me, how you doing, Ryan? I don't just go fine, like we all do. Say, not good, man. Can I tell you for 10 minutes? But you have to be willing to listen. That's our problem as society. How's it going? Good. Hmm. Really? But do you want to hear why it's not good? That's the other problem. Well, I don't have any time. I got to go. I can't take 10 minutes to listen to your emotions. Um, so then you get to the question. So we've paid attention to how people are acting, talking, what's happening. How do we ask them? Like, I'm worried about this Justin dude. I'm going to sit down and talk to him and right face to face to his eyes say, are you thinking about suicide? Not, are you thinking about maybe hurting yourself? Or are you thinking about doing something stupid? Don't do that. I'm going to say, man, I care for you. Are you thinking about suicide? And I am 99% sure that he's going to say, yes, thank you for asking. So if you pay attention to the signs and explore the invitations and invest yourself, you don't have to be a doctor to get to that point. You can ask someone to their face, are you thinking about suicide? Okay, they said yes. Now what do I do? Sit with them. Because if someone just admits they're thinking about suicide, they're probably going to start talking a lot. Here's what's happened. Here's why my life sucks. Blah, blah, blah. This could go on for hours. Okay. Now I want to try to persuade you. That's the P to get help. I would call the persuade more listen. I'm not begging you. Justin, we need to take you to Allen Hospital right now. It's more, Justin, I'm your buddy, and I'm going to sit here and listen to everything that's bothering you. Okay, we get through that. R, refer. I'm your friend, Justin. I think it would be a good idea for you to call 1-800-273-TALK. Or I think we should go talk to your pastor. Or I think maybe we should go talk to a parent. Or I think you're at the point where you probably need to go stay somewhere a couple days. So how can I help you with that step? Simple, QPR. If at any point in there people are like, I can't do that, find someone else who can. Don't just leave the person you're concerned about. That's the problem, I think. Um, we just don't invest enough of our time and energy to help people around them. So QPR is 
can be done in one to two hours, correct? Hour and a half, two hours. As we're learning here, I like to talk. So sometimes <laughs> it ends up, and it depends on how, if people ask questions. Sometimes they do, and the discussion, we go way off track, the PowerPoint slides, and I'm like, yes, we got the basic stuff. Let's talk about real life here. And that's what I prefer to do. If you can get people to open up, we all learn way more. Listen, 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 listen. The two ears, one mouth is so crucial. Um, and we just don't do it. I, I'm talking about this envisioning two people are in the same room because I love eye to eye contact. There's so much emotion in that. Sometimes that might not be possible. I might be trying to help someone in Tennessee or like a relative or a friend or something. I would highly recommend this is not like a Snapchat or text conversation. Might start as a text, but at least get it to phone call, FaceTime maybe. But I would really push people to try to be in the same room if humanly possible. There's just so much power in that, in your nonverbals, way more power. Uh, the Blending the persuade refer, I'm kind of going to reference the assist class. I hope I don't confuse you here, but the applied suicide intervention skills training, which is a 16 hour class. People might go, whoa, that's two eight hour days, too much. I wish everyone would take this course. It is deep. You learn a ton, you get to role play, practice, and I think everyone walks out of it feeling, I really, I think I can help people. If I notice certain things about people, I know what to do, and I'm going to pay more attention to people around me. That's the main key. How do we pay more attention? Assist has six steps, so in the middle is hear their story, which kind of coincides with the QPR persuade or listen and then in assist the next step is support turning we want a turning point a turning point is where people someone who's suicidal will realize oh i do want to be here next week because survivors on or my kids graduating turning points are so powerful in life. So kind of my turning points were kind of child's coming. I want my marriage to work. Um, wow, I rediscovered church and God. This is awesome. Another turning point for me was support group. Like, oh, there is hope. But to some people, a turning point can be as simple as I want to see my football team play next season. I want to be alive at least that long. Or... Oh, I really do like running. Why would I kill myself when I now I won't be able to run anymore? So we really want people to find their own hope turning point. We can't, it's okay maybe to sit there and encourage, let them know, well, you have all these things or people that love you and are good, but the person that's struggling really kind of has to find their own hope. We can't force feed it to them because then we're giving the hope. Someone who's struggling has to, in their heart or mind, realize, oh yeah, I really do love my wife. Why, why would I leave this world right now? Speaking of hope, I encourage all of you right now to put this podcast on pause. Take that moment and program the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number into your phone so that you can be the one to provide hope to yourself or someone in need. That number is 800-273-TALK, 800-273-8255. Also, program the crisis text line number into your phone as well, which Ryan will bring up later, 741-741. Why? Because as Ryan states, we need to sound the alarm, and we need everyone to join the fight. We all have to step up. I believe in the U.S. in a one-year time period, 16 million people at some point consider suicide. That's a huge number. And I'm thinking on the other side, how many experts do we have in the world of mental health or suicide prevention? So who do we consider experts? Doctors, nurses, counselors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, 
you could name a long, long list, but you're never going to match up enough of them <laughs> with the amount of people struggling or grieving. I consider experts, I put myself in that field because I've lost someone, I've been suicidal, and now I'm trying to help people. There's people that know way more than me, but I am uh, accumulating all of these stories from people and I learn at every training from the people there. So there's never going to be enough experts. So if our average society just thinks, well, someone else can help suicidal people, we all have to step up. That's all of our duty. We can all be experts. Expert just sits and listens. And then, well, I don't know what to do. Well, let's call 1-800-273-TALK. There's a national hotline you can call that will tell you what to do or get you help. We, we don't, don't shy away because you're scared. I'm not an expert. What if I say the wrong thing? Just love people. Give them time and love them. And that's, that's not going to hurt it. And then take it from there. With the assist, it's so good. It is just so good. Uh, I hope COVID goes away. And we, I did a couple of assists this summer for smaller groups. It's just so powerful. Nobody leaves that saying, oh, what a waste of my time. That was a waste of two days. You get to practice. So we will take people that come and you're, I mean, you're role playing. People get all nervous about that. But then when we get done, they're like, oh, I wish we could role play more. Because you're just practicing and it, it makes you better and more comfortable. Uh, it's just a really deep look at from step one till the end. Here's how we want to try to help people. But the stay safe is one of the top things of that. How do we keep people safe? Some, some people are suicidal for many, many years. Some people, men like me, it can escalate and rise, you know, within a 10 minute time period. Things are happening, kind of considering this was when I was at my worst. Okay, suicide's on the table. This is an option. A few bad things happen. Okay, suicide might be in my top five options now. A few other things happen. Okay, it's rising up to my top three options. That's where we got to stop it. How do we stay safe for now? How does someone step up and help you? Uh, I used to preach suicide is not an option. I don't think I'm going to say that anymore because I think it is, unfortunately. I just don't want it to be in your top 100 options ever. If it ever gets in your top 100, maybe make a mental note. Maybe I should talk to somebody. If it gets in your top 20, like now I really need to write a safety plan or something. If it gets in your top five, like this is where you got to talk to somebody. Anyone with who has thought about suicide as an option, I think number one on the safety plan has to be 1-800-273-TALK. That's the national hotline. If you call, I've called that number asking them questions. <clears throat> I've called that number making sure people answer, <laughs> just checking on it. Um, they're not going to send an ambulance to your house instantly. If As soon as you call the number, the cops aren't going to show up. But that's the purpose of them is to help you. They will listen to you. Uh, if they feel you are actively suicidal and something might happen, then there are other steps that happen. But it's just an outlet to talk to. Also, 741-741, which is the text, which I think most people prefer, at least younger people. I would put those at the top of your safety plans. These are things we can reach out to. In 1991, they might have existed. Well, the text one didn't. There might have been a national phone number. I didn't know about it. In small town Iowa, we had no clue that there was a phone number where you could call to get help. Another part of safety plan, I would say would be something you really enjoy doing. If you feel yourself slipping, stress, pain, everything stinks, it's going horrible. Go do something you like. Well, it's too expensive. Go do it. Well, not... We're going to Jamaica. We have no money. Well, that might make it worse. Don't do that. But go eat a cake. What? Not every single day. But you have to do things you enjoy to kind of balance. Might be call an old friend. Read a book. Take a bath. Get a massage. It might just be simple things. 
This is if people notice it coming on. I know there are a lot of people who sink into the depths of depression and just aren't alert to, oh, this is happening. I need to reference my safety plan. That's why they have to have friends, family, peers around them noticing, okay, something's going on there. A concern I had eating away at me while listening to Ryan was with regard to referencing specific people within the safety plan, especially when the one person you had on your safety plan becomes someone driving you further into the depths of depression. Ryan shares that he follows the rule of five, ensuring your plan has five trusted people who you know you can go to in moments of challenge or crisis. I understand what you're saying. The you can't safety plan can't be so reliant on like one person that could be dangerous. Uh, there should be multiple people. An example would be I've worked in youth group for 11 or 12 years and we want all kids leaving high school to trust or have five adult mentors. So as these kids go off to college, they would whatever something good happens something bad happens they would feel comfortable calling me and saying hey ryan you were my one of my youth group volunteers i just wanted to tell you i'm married and we're pregnant and everything's good we want kids to grow up with mentors besides their parents adults they will trust because i'm learning quickly that teenage children don't talk to their parents <laughs> that much um so that's the power of five is what we call it. So the same thing going back to like a safety plan. If I'm struggling and Justin is on my safety plan and he's the only human being on there and me and Justin are all of a sudden not getting along or bickering about something and I'm ticked off at Justin and I'm struggling and I look at my safety plan on my fridge and Justin's my one because if you're totally reliant on one and that pulls away or fails, then you're, you know, if I called 1-800-273-TALK and was in desperate need and no one answered, whoa, that's my only outlet. What am I going to do? Well, they're going to answer. I promise you that. But if that was my, this is the only thing I can do and no one answered, you got to have other choices. So the, the power of five, which I think is so powerful. Spe specifically for teenage entering that weird high school, college, I'm lost age. It helps them, and I think it can help us all. What has always amazed me about Ryan is how loving he is and how much he cares about others. The rule of five shows exactly that, ensuring everyone maintains as many outlets as possible so that they can feel loved and supported. Through one of Ryan's nonprofits, Alive and Running Iowa, Ryan demonstrates his love of running. Well, he went beyond anything he had ever imagined recently and hit an important milestone, a 50K, 5-0, which he, of course, added as a fundraiser and utilizes as a metaphor for mental health and suicide prevention. This is where I get really excited. Because <laughs> this, this was actually one week ago from the time we are recording this so i'm still kind of on a runner's high uh i've i've been running since 04 15 16 years i'm just an average medium runner but it is therapeutic medicinal brings me joy brings me pain but i just love it i absolutely love it i'm age 45 the furthest i'd ever gone was a marathon and for the past few months, I was flirting in my own mind with, I want to go further. I want to go further. So a few months ago, I promised my neighbors, I'm doing it. And they're like, well, let's have a neighborhood party and food and we'll cheer you on and beverage. So we booked a date. And then because of summer work, uh, I didn't get very many training miles in. But I, I said, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. So this was a week ago. I did it. I am an ultra runner, but it hurt. It hurt bad. Uh, the, this is such a correlation to mental health, uh, running, and life. Life is a marathon. I say that all the time. I've ran marathons. Now I've ran 31 miles at once. It's just kind of a roller coaster, too. 
when you have the high running, don't get too high and go too fast because the low's coming and you know it's coming. So you have to have energy for the low. Uh, I cried during this run. I cried on the last lap. I thought about suicide a lot. The work I'm doing, I thought about people we've lost and this just energized me to keep my feet moving. It's 31 miles at mile 23. I was as close to hell as I ever want to be. Just horrible. If there's any runners listening, I'm sure they can relate. I, my body was locking up. I didn't have enough fluid or food in me. Everything was cramped, but I must go on. I said, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish. If I end up crawling, we're going to finish. Uh, and this is the key point of the whole run. People came with me. So people from my church were there at the end. My neighborhood was there. My family was there. Uh, people were running, walking, biking. But when it hit the worst, there was a lady from my church who said, I will finish with you. And she ran the last 20 kilometers. Ran, jogged, walked. Uh, that's 12.4 miles for you Americans, which I am too. But runners usually go by kilometers so it 30 kilometers were all fun and games easy 18.6 miles the last 12.4 tough 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 but the whole outcome of this entire run is this friend was there to support me when i needed to walk she let me walk but she would only let me walk for a few minutes and then she would say ryan we need to run but I want to walk. It hurts. We need to run. Okay. So we'll run. The pain became too much. I say, Maddie, I got walk. Okay. But we're only walking a few minutes. Kept going. And that is such a correlation to life of why we have to have each other's backs all the time. Um, in a five hour and 21 minute run, jog, walk, your mind goes to some pretty bad places. So if she hadn't been there, if Jason from my church hadn't been there, if my dad hadn't sat at my house clicking 90 laps so I could see him every time I went by, if my kids weren't out there riding their bikes, I never would have finished. I would have tried, but I had to have other people. My legs went 31 miles, but without them, it wouldn't have happened. So we have to have the supports. Because that's what got me through. And now I want to go further. <laughs> Did you use that 50K as a fundraiser as well? Yes. It, we raised money for Alive and Running Iowa. So I think we had about $1,500, which is fantastic. I gave people the option of $31, 31 miles, $50, 50 kilometers, or $90. Because I actually, this is where I sound a little crazy ran 90 laps around my neighborhood. It's about a third of a mile. Uh, I did 90 laps. So I did not run from my house out 15 and a half miles somewhere and back. I ran 90 laps around the same neighborhood and I loved it. Loved it because people were there. I love the crowd and the support and the bathroom's always close by when you go by your house 90 times. <laughs> That's a benefit too. So yeah, we raised some money. Uh, some things will be in a few newspapers. But this the run was not about me at all. Personally, I wanted it for my running resume. Because I crave that distance and that pain. Because I know it leads to, I finished. But this was about inspiring hope. So Maddie allowed me to finish because she stuck with me as a friend and hopefully someone hears or reads about it and goes, whoa, how did that guy do that? If they would look at me, they'd be like, yeah, tall, skinny guy, but no way he can run 31 miles at once. I fight. I fought through it and it was bad. But so was a whole bunch of years of my life where I struggled and I'm still standing. So hopefully people realize there's hope. There's always hope. And sometimes the person you least expect to show up, this lady just showed up that morning. I didn't know she was coming. 
And she knew I was struggling. She said, I'll stay with you till the end. Hope just shows up. Awesome. Hope just shows up. We certainly hope that this episode brought you hope and provided you with helpful tips and strategies. We also want you to have the opportunity to hear Ryan's story and receive the training for QPR and assist. Thankfully, Ryan is available for bookings and is always available to chat. As he said throughout, we need more humans helping humans. Uh, so many options. And my, I give out my phone number everywhere because it's on multiple websites. It's 641-990-4957 or else Alive and Running has a website, aliveandrunningiowa.com. We have a really good Facebook page. It's Alive and Running Iowa for Suicide Awareness and Prevention. And I'm, we're really proud of that Facebook group because there's a lot of people helping people on there. I don't do a lot on Facebook. My co-director, Troy Belmer, handles all that, but I'll get on and read. There's just a lot of people supporting each other, and that's crucial right now. We can't have our support groups in person, so you're doing it on social media, and it's, it's awesome to see the help people give each other. Uh, email. R-Y-A-N dot R dot N-E-S-B-I-T at gmail.com. I think I hit all those. Or just come to Jessup, Iowa, 2nd Street. Look for me out running around the block over and over. You can find me. I'm on the internet. I've. You can probably find videos of me or newspaper stories. Dig deep enough, you might find bad stuff. Who knows? My high school transcript, I don't <laughs> Hopefully not. But yeah, I, I'm excited to do more QPR trainings. We're still doing them, even though COVID's happening. I've done some recently. I just tell people, wear a mask if you want or don't. Let's try to stay separate. Let's all sanitize. Let's wipe stuff off. Let's just be as safe as we can. But we need education right now more than ever because the world is hurting right now bad and we really need each other and we need to know how to watch each other so we can help each other we leave our episode today asking mr ryan nesbitt one question knowing all that he knows now what would 45 year old ryan say to that 15 year old ryan sitting in the hearse with a bag right in front of him well, I save the best for the end. There's a song playing in my head. Uh, all my hope is in Jesus. Give me a... That's a pause for a tear. Uh, it, you know, life is so messed up, even for 45-year-old Ryan with his wife and three kids and... This world is tough, but if you've listened to all this, I kind of enjoy pain, the running, because I know if you can get through the pain, what's at the end is so good. That's what I would tell him. Um, I would tell him no matter how mad you get at God, he still has you for sure. It. It's just hard to see sometimes. It's still hard for me to see at 45 because there, there's so much happening right now. People are so angry and everyone just wants to fight and politics and COVID and whose lives matter. It, I can't even watch news anymore because I get so confused. I thought about this driving to do this for two hours. Like, I'm just going to be nice to everybody. Let me make that my goal, including my children, when they really tick me off, which will probably happen today. I want my goal to be nice to everybody so I can control that. In Jessup, Iowa, or wherever I go to talk to people, I can bring them kindness. And maybe they'll say, oh, maybe we should try that. Maybe I don't make all these posts on Facebook, the first thought that pops in my head and to promote fighting and so be kind, get yourself some Jesus, get through the pain. I'm trying to summarize because it, 
the finish line is so good and you can't skip. I say, I say you can't quit and you can't skip. I can't take a shortcut because then I just cheated myself to get to the finish. I got to go through the yuck, but the finish is so good. And that's why I want to run 50 miles now because <laughs> it's so awesome. Well said. The finish line is so good and you can't skip. Don't cheat yourself. Thank you to Mr. Ryan Nesbitt for sharing his story, being an advocate and being a voice for hope and love. For more information on this topic and many others, go to facingtomorrow.org. There you'll find corresponding blog posts with all the podcasts on Facing Tomorrow. And we also encourage you on that blog post to add your comments, suggestions, other books and resources that you found valuable in your own journey. But most importantly, always remember you are loved, you are needed, you are appreciated, and you should never feel like you have to walk this journey alone. Thank you very much for taking the time to listen. <laughs>